Hello, this is Paul Ayers, the fifth professional one. Before we get into this so important topic of information technology, I wanted to let the listener know that we had some technical difficulty with the audio portion of Alex's recording. You're going to hear something that sounds over the top, kind of lispy or almost not human with some pauses, yet you can still make out 99% of what he says and the content is very good. We did discuss this between us and Alex recommended that we leave the content up because the discussion is good, the information is outstanding, and there's just a whole bunch of takeaways to get. So enjoy, and I hope to have Alex back on one day so you can really hear his real voice. So with that, let's get to it. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Fit Professional One podcast. Before we get into it, I just want to spend just a second for the listener to understand I'm putting two products out there. They're a little bit different, actually fundamentally different. On a weekly basis coming out on Thursdays, I have what I refer to as the Marja Max Minute. The Marja Max Minute is going to be weekly between five and 10 minutes, and the objective is to share a tip or some ideas that can be used as a catalyst to immediately help you maximize your margin, optimize your team, or rescue your time. Today, we're working on the podcast, the Fit Professional One podcast. This is where we do a much deeper dive between one and two hours on a bi-weekly basis. These will be released late on Monday night, so figure Tuesday morning, and we hope that you'll join us for both. But I thought that was important so you understand what you can choose from and subscribe to out there on the channel. So with that, today we're going to talk about a really interesting topic that I think affects everybody in organizations and individuals as well. Today I have with me Alexander Ayers. He is a prominent North American technology manager in the construction space, uh, really quite versed in tools in that industry and beyond. I'm just thrilled to have him with us today to talk about the whole subject of information technology and where it's going, especially with the recent advent of chat, GPT, getting more and more prevalent out there in the world. So with that, i like, Alex, would you take some time to just introduce yourself and let us know how you came to be the construction technology manager. And for full disclosure, Alex is my oldest son, whom I am very proud of for obvious reasons. So take it away. For sure. Good to speak to you all today, FitPro One World. As mentioned, I'm Alexander Ayers, construction technology manager at the Cordy Company. Some background of how I got to here today. Started kind of just with an interest in building and interest in assemblies, specifically architecture. That's kind of what initiated my schooling because of science and architecture, as we like to call it a BS in architecture, no shortage of BS in that degree, to be sure. I went on to pursue a dual master's in construction management and architecture to try and supplement what I saw as shortcomings in the bachelor's, specifically shortcomings into how things actually went together and how that process is actually managed throughout from putting shovels on the ground to handing over the keys to the owner. Throughout that grad school experience, I learned more about what I'll call people and processes, which is now my focus. So to kind of expand on the experience I already outlined, you know, I'll name drop briefly here. I've got my bachelor of science degree is from the University of Michigan. That's actually where I met my now wife, chemical engineer from that same institution. Since then, I went to pursue those two master's degrees at Washington University in St. Louis. 
what attracted me to WashU was not only their generous scholarship, but also just presence of large contractors within the St. Louis area, as opposed to the greater Detroit area. Since my better half has also pursued an MBA from WashU, so both WashU and Michigan have very much, they've received a lot of checks from me and you for that matter, and, and certainly helped propel our careers. Um, and of course, my wife and I have recently welcomed our first baby girl into the world and TBD and whether or not she pursues architecture, business, or engineering, we will see. As far as certifications goes, following grad school, I pursued a DBIA association, Design Build Institute of America. Very fitting for Cordy because design build is very much our bread and butter. So very much understanding, you know, how project delivery is meant to happen in an ever-evolving design build context. And then more recently, the AGC, Association of General Contractors, has several licensures or certifications that they offer, one of which being CMBIM, a lot of acronyms being thrown out there. That one is Construction Manager BIM, as in Building Information Modeling, or said another way, the process of utilizing 3D models to augment the construction and design process. My goal exiting school has always been to sort of ride the line between construction and architecture, if you will. And I've found so far the best way to do that is to indeed focus on people and process. So where I am now, maybe started as a project engineer, the entry-level position in the construction space, actually participating in the managing and actual building of our projects here at Cordy. That eventually evolved into the implementation of enterprise-wide software. So a bit of the process side of the people and process goal of my own. And later that evolved into actually managing, hiring, and mentoring all project engineers throughout our company. So the people half of what I do today. So now I seek ways to both mentor those entry-level professionals here at Cordy, but also to optimize our process to sort of make us more efficient as a company to better utilize the tools that are becoming more and more common throughout our industry. One thing I'd just like to point out for everybody is Alex's background in design, both undergrad architecture, and then grad school has really been a pleasure to watch him roll out as, you know, we think architecture and we think what structures, spaces, as he's well-schooled me, but there's also process design and there's organizational design and there's all these other things where it's been just a pleasure watching you, you know, roll those talents and things in. So do you have anything come to mind that you can share with us that doesn't divulge one of your super secrets <laughs> that makes you successful that you could share with us how the concept of design actually rolls in? Because I think it's really prevalent for the discussion of information technology. For sure. I would say despite not practicing in architecture, not pursuing licensure in architecture. My biggest and most valuable takeaway from all that time in school was the ability to really defend and outline an idea. Primarily, those were design concepts or design decisions as related to projects in school, but that's really a universally applicable concept. Being able to kind of organize your own thoughts that accumulate over the course of a semester and essentially present them succinctly and understandably to a group that hasn't been with you throughout the semester. So if I'm designing, we'll say, cultural center in Barcelona, for example, I have six months of thoughts, sketches, diagrams, models, et cetera. But how do I condense that briefly into a 30 to 90 second prompt that I give reviewers during a final presentation at the end of the semester? And I found that to be maybe the biggest advantage of the type of school that I've went through 
that I still use today, being able to defend my own thought process or decision that I make in my day-to-day work. Yeah, I'm hoping that you'll be able to share with us some of your portfolio that you've kind of put out there publicly that we can roll in for the YouTube version because there's just some really neat stuff. So as you're going through that, and even now when I'm talking, we hope to roll that in if that's okay. I think a really good segue into the first thing, Alex and I were just kind of chatting about information dissemination and who needs to know what and really got into it. So we want to start the day on information technology with that because I know Alex works with us on a constant basis as well as trying to improve productivity of the human resources. So what can you share with us, Alex, about both your frustrations and successes with information dissemination and just kind of how that rolls in and what the considerations might be. For sure. I'll speak to what I know. So I'll kind of frame the answer to your question in the context of a construction project and how Mm -hmm. I believe information can be disseminated in that context. But of course, if you have kind of an organizational perspective, by all means, chime in. We can kind of derail towards that. You know, on the construction side of things, it's no secret that we've had a maybe uncomfortably fast evolution from paper, literally, to what I would call electronic paper, just basically electronic versions of what we were doing with paper drawings, paper documents, et cetera, to what we have now of more of a connected system of project management, ERP, accounting, et cetera. At least on the construction project, it's so, so important to know the scope. Of course, we as general contractors manage that comprehensive scope that ideally results in a finished building. But then of course you have 20 to 30 subcontractors that own individual pieces of that. And of course, Cordy operates mainly at a design build context where that scope is sort of evolving during the initial stages of that project. So I guess in a word, you know, information dissemination in that context needs to be vast and early. All of those 20 to 30 stakeholders need to know what is changing for their scopes And you not only need to notify them of those changes, but sort of confirm understanding that those changes have been essentially received and will be acted upon. You know, if you are changing the spacing in your joists in a roof system, and maybe that spacing change is the result of a redesign of a fire protection system running through said roof joist, you have to make sure each of the parties involved with that scope have that information as soon as possible so they can react to it. And then you or us as a general contractor can manage those reactions and if necessary, engage the owner and how the contract, the terms of the contract may have changed. And so again, information dissemination, I think it's so important to be at physical paper in the past, you know, sort of the intermediary step of what I'll call electronic paper and now more connected systems, regardless of where you are as a company, you really need to manage and be ahead of that process to make sure people are receiving the information they need as soon as possible so you can understand the implications of it. All right. As you're talking there, what came to mind, we can kind of use that as a segue into the first article. The listener out there, I pulled four Harvard Business Review articles. So if you're interested in what those are, please contact me at www.thefitprofessional1.com and I'll let you know what those titles are and you can go out and procure them for yourself. But we centered on the idea of information dissemination. The first one is reflects another digital tool and the frustrations that happen in organizations. And it, it throws a stat out there that 43% of professionals, and I've forgotten the other stats on the study, but 
43% in this particular study thought that there's just too much and they don't work well together. And there's another piece that maybe we can talk about, and that is a lot of people overestimate the amount of information that they need. You know, you're building buildings, you're doing construction. I don't know if what I just said is applicable to that industry, but there are other industries where it is applicable. So if we kind of get a bell curve of possibilities here, I recently did a podcast on Apollo 13 that I'll reference a few times because I want to get into catastrophic management principles, which might be applicable for people going forward. But first of all, they had a rule kind of where they maximized the information dissemination because they wanted everybody to know because they're saving lives. And I might have that a little bit wrong, but let's just go with that particular interpretation for a minute. So you roll that in, but they also had rules of engagement. They had procedures, maybe rules the wrong word. So people were trained in how to take action relative to information. So what comes to my mind as an industrial engineer is when you do something, you have an expected outcome. And sometimes the outcome lands where it's not supposed to, and sometimes it's better. Okay. That's a data point. So we use that and then we react to it. And if I'm doing my job and everything's dialed in, I'm feeling good. But when too much comes in, what happens? What happens in your world when people are swamped with data? Do you have any go? No, I have, I have several reactions to huh. what you said. I, I suppose firstly, yeah, I sort of described information dissemination in a construction context very quickly. But what I glazed over, maybe didn't mention, is the, we'll say, channel in which you do disseminate that information needs to be very intentional and needs to be agreed upon by your project team. Whether or not this is what you're alluding to, a problem we see in construction is you have text, you have the email, you have teams, you have whatever built-in chat there is into Zoom or a project management software, et cetera. And so you have all these options of where you can just communicate, regardless of what the context of that communication is. And so which do you use, right? And so regardless of what that is, I think you have to be very intentional about that choice and manage that throughout the project and make the expectations around that choice very clear. So for example, we will issue our drawings using a project management system. We are no longer going to mail you a physical set of drawings. And so we try to make that verbally clear upfront but also, quite frankly, write that into the contract. Like, thou shall use this system as the quote-unquote single source of truth. So I want to make sure I clarify that as it relates to disseminating information and construction. Using or responding to your Apollo 13 example, I've never worked at least full-time on the pre-construction side as an estimator, so to speak. But they have a very strategic choice to make in the exact context you're describing. You know, I'll stick with the roof choice example from before. If I'm looking for a subcontractor who can supply and erect roof choices for me, I need to initially give them the documents, i.e. drawings, specifications, other descriptors that they need to quantify and plan for their work. We call that a bid package, generally speaking. There are different schools of thought that I've encountered, again, not having worked full-time as an estimator of how large or how all-encompassing that bid package should be. I would say, as far as the spectrum of information provided goes, some folks will pull out the drawings from, say, an overall set of drawings that are relevant to that scope. Makes sense, right? If I'm buying roof work, I will give you the drawings that pertain to roofing. But that then puts you at risk of what if a roofing drawing references through a note or through a detail to a mechanical drawing, and I, as an estimator, didn't catch that and omitted the drawing that was included by reference? I all of a sudden have unintentionally given 
incomplete information to someone I'm relying on a price from. So on the opposite end of that spectrum, you have an estimator that will understandably so give the entire set of drawings, the entire specifications to said bidders, uh, avoiding the risk of accidentally omitting something that would be relevant to that scope. So I would say that's sort of how the spectrum plays out in pre-construction and our ability to buy work, so to speak, and just kind of where you want to place that risk. Do you want that risk placed on yourself in terms of deciding what you give to that subcontractor or supplier, or you want them to give them everything and sort of, in some ways, offload that risk on them to determine what constitutes complete scope from their perspective. That's just one example of information dissemination and construction, but I hope one that somewhat aligns to the thought process behind the Apollo 13. So the what happens, can you give us an example of where you've kind of had a log jam of information? In other words, information slowed or hurt the process, as in I'm kind of leaning towards the side too much, mm -hmm. too many systems, too much information, too much data. Do you have anything like that that you can 100%. share with us and what you did about it? hundred percent. I'll try to get two in the weeds of construction intricacies, but the industry as a whole, not just recently, but the past many years is in a transition from, generally speaking, we'll say 2D drawings to 3D models. Generally speaking, approval, permit, licenses, et cetera, formal approvals are still issued against 2D documents. That many subcontractors and designers are operating and building those documents in a 3D environment. And so general contractors are essentially interacting with both sides of that equation, the 2D documents that produce approval and a 3D authoring tool that designs the building. As those things happen in parallel, you have to make sure that what you are building in three dimensions makes it to the page. And that's where you can get sort of overloaded of where is the stage of each of those sides, 2D versus 3D. Generally speaking, a I'll stick with the roofing example, they will produce a shop drawing, a quote unquote shop drawing that basically describes the joists or roof elements that they will install as part of your building. But in parallel with that, you may have an architect in a software like Revit, Autodesk Revit, designing that same system in 3D especially in a design build context. And so that's where you have to make sure you don't get overloaded with the presence of both of those and ensure that they're aligned against the schedule of your work, ensuring you can procure materials on time, install things on site on time, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay. Also an article we didn't go through, but I recently perused had to do with collaboration overload. And I'm just wondering about that because there's change coming and change. Most corporations don't have people sitting around who aren't fully utilized. It, it just doesn't fit in, in profitability structure. So as this change happens, I think there's uh, some challenge to be managed through that. Essentially, there's going to be a lot. And so what tips can you give out there to listeners, small companies are large, when they just have a whole lot to cram in, in terms of training, system turn, and all that kind of thing? You have any quick tips or any ideas? Well, let me, let me focus on the, the first part of your question about, I believe you called it collaboration overload. On a quick side note, you mentioned companies not fully utilizing individuals, and that's pretty rare. Uh, exactly. As a side note, Just... I keep hearing this concept of a quote-unquote bench, meaning you have staff on a quote-unquote bench waiting to be assigned to a project. 
that keeps getting thrown at me from software companies, and it is not a familiar concept. We don't have it here at Coldwell. No, no, medium and small size companies, some very large companies with really good profits, gross margin structures can afford bench, but most of us can't. Right. In fact, there is a workforce planning tool software in our industry, literally called Bench, Bridget Bench. <laughs> Shout out to Bridget, but perhaps a not helpful name given the what you just described. Yeah. Going back to collaboration overload, I won't pretend that Cordy, my company, had the answers to that question. We, in some ways, may suffer from collaboration overload as we speak. As I mentioned before, I sort of fire off examples of tools, but that is the reality at Cordy. I mean, a superintendent may text with his or her foreman throughout their job site, but there's also Teams chat. There's also email. There's also chat tools built into whatever software you probably bought recently at your own company. I have my notes pulled up for this podcast on OneNote, you know, another tool where you can collaborate in. So again, I would say as a tip, sort of do your best to evaluate the pros and cons for your use case and then be intentional about what you choose. Hmm. With Corey being sort of an experimental phase, sort of having the wide array of tools, what I've encouraged my folks to do, and for what it's worth, despite project engineers being entry-level, they often wear sort of the tech expert hat on their respective jobs. So what I've challenged those project engineers to do is try to make that evaluation, the pros and cons of those tools specific for your project use case and stick to it. So I got a great suggestion, credit to one of my PEs, Harsh Bansal, to use a OneNote notebook specific to your job, where all the folks on your job are operating and taking their notes within that OneNote notebook. No, we don't have that as a company standard. I think it has some potential, but I think it's worth being tested out on that job to see if it works for a superintendent, to see if it works for a project manager and not just the PE who's wearing, again, that tech hat. I even have it as a sticker here on my coffee mug. I've got my my PE squad on a computer because I expect them to be computer literate and sort of leverage that literacy, again, for their use case. But that all said, it would certainly be advantageous if we as Cordy, as an organization, made that decision across all jobs. I don't know what we would extract yet out of using the same tool across our company, but just by establishing that standard, it gives you that opportunity to decide what would be a value to extract or maybe make access easier or more familiar to people from job to job, as opposed to experiencing something a little different from job to job. Awesome. So Alex, what I'm really interested in is I've been doing a lot of research and it's like, I don't even know what I don't know as I get into it. And what appears to be something that's really prevalent is combining the various marketing, sales, and transaction in the B2C space. So, okay. Neither of us live there in our professional lives, But there seems to be a lot of momentum gathered. That end of the role is really getting combined. And we did read an article on that, which was quite amazing. And I think it'd be interesting to talk to the extent you're able about how that impacts a company like yours, especially based on the fact that they did some surveys, this Harvard Business Review article, coming up with these big corporate buyers spend a total of 17% of their time with essentially what would be a sales rep, but that's not per vendor, that's in mass. And that's really different. Now in your world, you guys have all kinds of subcontractors. So for this conversation, maybe we consider 
all of those entities internal. But how do you do you see the buy side changing with information technologies changes for the construction industry? Hundred percent. I'll I'll speak to what I know, which is sort of the researching and vetting of software to be used by our company. But I'll try to touch on what I do know about actually selling of construction services as well. For your reader's benefit, I would like to reference one of those articles and specifically the case study on smart technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, they are an educational software and they sort of reframed that relationship to sort of design their sales pipeline for how their customers actually interacted with their product and researched their product, as opposed to sort of marketing, identifying a customer and then having a handoff to sales. They optimize that into what Smart is calling five steps, learning about the product, actually buying the product, ordering, installing the product, the adoption or implementation of the product, a big part of my role. And finally, the ongoing support. On the flip side, my side as a, we'll say, buyer of technology, I like to think of it as research. So an equivalent to their learn step, the vetting which is in some ways also that learning step, is it right for our business? And then following the, you know, sort of skipping the fail, assuming the purchase actually does happen, the implementation and an ongoing training. That's kind of how I frame it. As it relates to the statistics you mentioned briefly, I, as a buyer of those services, am often likewise not wanting to engage with a sales rep because that sales rep may or may not have the answers to the questions that I'm really seeking to answer. Mm. Um, very oftentimes with, you know, sort of the high level descriptions or demos that a given construction software company will publish to their website will often give me a pretty solid idea of whether or not it's worth me engaging with that company further. And so I think as the data sort of alluded to, whether it's my generation or just the habits that have changed over the years, I would rather sort of vet, quote unquote, that product for whether or not it can solve my problem before I ask more detailed or nuanced questions to a person or a rep. I don't know if this is unique to construction. It's just what I know. But I've seen a lot of software companies will actually hire people, will say, like me, who have project management experience to go and then help supplement their sales efforts or supplement those nuanced questions that a customer wants to ask. So maybe to give me as the buyer more confidence that I'm not just talking to someone who sold pharmaceuticals and is now trying to sell me scheduling software in a project management context. So I guess that is something I appreciate as a buyer that I've seen more commonly, at least in construction technology companies. But either way, I'm very much relying on, you know, that initial publishing of information and what I can get at without ever engaging a person mm -hmm. to see if it's worth me engaging further. And what I'd like to add to that is the buyers are really in the power position now. The power has shifted to the buyers because they're able to do so much. And those articles reference that stat that it's really interesting age-wise demographically. So people in my boat, baby boomers, we still like the call by the rep. What was it? Seven, what was it? 29. So 71% of us like to be called. And it's not that way for millennials. And millennials, what was it? 
do not want to deal with a rep. So more than half, and I'm guessing that as that slides younger, that number goes up, but I don't know. It's a reasonable hypothesis, but what's really interesting is again, the power in the advent of technology to do so much of the work in those buying jobs. The other thing as a senior executive that's really interesting is what's going to happen to roles in management. In another course that I'm taking at the Kellogg School of Business, they're, right now it's very early on, but they're talking about the fact that roles are getting merged in the C-suite. So you take your chief information officer, your chief marketing officer, chief financial officer even, and all of a sudden you have a chief revenue officer or some combination of that that's all on the front end. In a way, it's like we're breaking down business into get the job, fill the job. And there's a whole bunch of discussion on get the job and in your construction space, do the job is ginormous, right? Oh, yeah. It is for most of us. But what I think that particular article didn't address, and it wasn't really the theme of it, but we have to, don't you agree we have to integrate the operation or order fulfillment? We can't be all, it's good to drive it to make the customers want to do it, but we can't ignore the downline impacts to our operations and order fulfillment. Does that make sense? Or how does no. that manifest itself in the construction space? No, I agree with that statement that you have to understand the impact down the line, so to speak. A couple of things there I'd want to touch on. First, as a millennial, I feel compelled to clarify, <laughs> sure, I'm part of the 54% that maybe not initially wants to engage in a sales rep, but once I've determined that this product could have value or likely has value for my organization, in that moment is when I would like to engage with a rep, right. ideally who is knowledgeable, because that's when I would like to ask nuanced questions to really finalize whether or not what's being sold to me. Again, yeah, and case, uh, excuse software. me. The, yeah. The other piece is too that they want to when things get complex, right? Yep. Yeah. And so going back to kind of the combination of roles and you know what that should look like. Yeah. I, in fact, I've heard the chief revenue officer title mainly on software companies doesn't exist yet here at Cordy, but I definitely think there is a little bit of sell the work, do the work division yeah. at least in our organization, and then maybe an over encompassing control and track the work. And, you know, at least in construction, it feels a bit divided, at least in who participates. I mean, ideally, the concept should sort of remain a common thread, meaning the approach and plan that you are selling to a customer will say by way of technical proposal and subsequent interview slash presentation and construction, ideally as a concept should remain the same throughout the execution of the work. And so mm -hmm. there is, you know, I would love to tell you that happens every single time in construction. But I think given the you know collaboration overload issues we've already talked about, I think sometimes the sale isn't always aligned with the execution, at least not in construction. Ideally it would be, that's absolutely the goal. But just given the fact that your actual project manager and superintendent, yes, you would love to have them in that interview to get to work, but just given the pace at which work happens and pops up, you can't always commit to that staffing to a job months ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So I know I'm speaking more on the execution level as opposed to the, the organizational level, but that's at least how I see that happening in the construction process is there is a worthwhile tracking of the plan of the quote unquote product, in our case, the service to construct a building being as consistent as possible from the moment you propose it to an owner again to the moment you hand over the keys, because ultimately you're sort of setting yourself up for failure if those are not matching. 
the listener who might not be familiar with construction, not that I know buildings, we used to do site design, build roads. So there's a lot of crossover there. And there's a real constraint in that world or reality, and it's physics-based. You're moving three objects with weight. There's mm -hmm. safety factors. There is just positioning certain things on a job site. There's all these things that make construction quite complex. And I think for the listeners are really good that don't have that. I think it's a really good industry to tune into because if you can get your arms around it a little bit, some other industries, it might be serve as some problem solving in it. The listener really has to remember that. So much different than so many industries and really pretty complex. So, Well, for the non-construction familiar out there, I mean, I'd, I'd go back to the smart technologies example. I mean, what they achieved was optimizing that pipeline for the way their customers bought their product. And I think that's a universal applicable yeah goal, right? I mean, no, we don't sell software. And so we can't use the same optimization that worked for smart. But for me, the product is the ultimately the plan with which you build the building. I mean, of course, the physical building is the product, but ultimately our commitment and ability to deliver it is mm -hmm. arguably, at least to me, what matters. And I think if maybe Cordy could optimize that pipeline to keep that plan consistent throughout and there's a lot of staffing implications. There's a lot of teaming considerations. You know, we don't always design our buildings. We'll partner with third parties. And I think as consistent as you can keep that through that, that pipeline, the better off, at least we will be in construction. And for those of you not in construction, I think if you can understand how your customer is interacting with your product, service, et cetera, and optimize the way they maybe initially interact with your information, the same way I want to interact with, say, a software vendor, whether or not they can solve my problem, and then optimizing that to get me to a sale, I think is a very valuable pursuit just for about any organization. Yeah. And, you know, with the gray hair I have, here's what I know is that the, the power in the organization is shifting. So as mm -hmm. people age and baby boomers retire out of the business, decision-making authority is going to a whole new generation. And I, what do you think about this statement? When you're redesigning your systems, should you be more focused on the decision makers coming into the market or, you know, construction again is different. We have 3D objects with weight that have to be placed. So there's some things that can't really change until Scotty, you know, on Star Trek can beam one up. You know, we're not there yet. But what do you think about that? If I'm a small or medium-sized company and I'm going to really assess my situation and start at least a partial redesign, I know I got to look at my customers. I get that. But on the specific question of what demographic, do you think that's relevant? Yes and no. In terms of the decision-making power shifting, I actually had a conversation earlier today. Again, my context is people in process within a construction management services company. Mm -hmm. So that that is what I know. That's how I can answer these questions. But the conversation was essentially what makes someone eligible to redesign a process? In construction, in my context, the conversation was being framed in sort of two avenues to eligibility. One being actual project management, we'll say boots on the ground experience the other being software and technology savvy. Ultimately, you'd want the decision maker to have both. But to what we had referred to earlier in the conversation, you have the constraint of likely fully loaded, if not overloaded resources throughout your organization. So you can't just pick Mr. or Mrs. project manager and pull them out of their already, you know, 
50 plus hour job a week and say, you know what, I'm going to give you 10 to 20 hours of software design or process design. And so I think instead, what I see, you know, as a quite frankly, younger member of management at my company is trying to best leverage what I know on the process technology side and integrate the lessons or guidance I'm being given from people who have had the boots on the ground experience in actual building of buildings. And so briefly referring to the four articles that were prepped for this particular podcast, again, would encourage the listeners to read them. There was talk about encouraging boards of companies to be okay increasing their IT budget and or their technology budget. And to me, what that means is you've got a younger, higher performer who knows your business well enough that you can sort of pluck from the quote unquote operation side of your business. And let them leverage the somewhat entry-level knowledge they have so far, combined with what I'm assuming, again, is the PE squad computer familiarity and leverage their familiarity with apps, with software, with the internet, and integrate that with what they know so far about your business and coach them through optimizing that redesign, knowing they have a little bit of both of those sides. Because you're, you're just likely not going to have the person that has both because they're probably in consulting somewhere, making a whole bunch of money doing their own thing. They're not at your organization. And so that would be my advice from what I know and a, yeah, a medium I, I design build contractor. Yeah, outstanding, affecting budgets and then decision trees. So when managers and owners have limited resources, right, we have to justify it. So based on an information technology redirect, if you will, bigger percentage going to IT to handle mm -hmm. the change that's coming. So we need to justify that. We need to, on the front end, be able to assess what our returns are going to be. You know, I'm a huge fan of return on assets. Technology lets you hit the denominator, right? If I make return over asset, and those are dollars, and I make assets lower through technology, my return on assets goes higher. In other words, potentially utilizing my other assets more efficiently. So that's certainly one thing. But as far as bringing in digital tools and getting them working together, how do we measure that? When I'm going to my board and I'm going to my senior management and I'm trying to get funds, right? What can I do? What is the cause and effect? And what I'd throw out to the, I want you to comment on that, Alex, but before you do, I mean, there's the classic four, save time, save materials or waste, save rework or create opportunities for new profitable revenue. We could probably think of some others, but those are the classic four, which when I'm stuck, I always try to bring my ideas back to one of those. And so what should we do to justify this and actually, if you will, sell to the C-suite who has the purse strings for where we're going to invest their money? No, that's a, that's a great question. And certainly an exercise I go through on a, we'll say weekly basis. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. For what it's worth, again, my realm being construction sure. technology, each of those individual vendors will attempt to answer that question for you to try and sell their product. And yes. by all means, remain dubious, remain skeptical of those attempts because they by all yeah. means are optimized for their product, not for your business. I think what you mentioned in the sort of base four is a great place to start. Ultimately, it may be a bit of correlation, not so much causation, where you may see the improvement in your business as a result of implementing a tool, but then the challenge becomes to tie that improvement 
to said implementation. As an example, using a comprehensive standard project management software may prevent the occurrence of a change order that's high dollar value. Right. It's a probability reduction. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. And so there we like to say for the you know large amount of costs that we incur from subscribing to project management software, ideally we are able through better dissemination of information in our project teams, avoid those change orders we would have otherwise encountered. So that's sort of one piece of it that we really kind of focus on and think about. I would say for sure, ideally, the next part is, is saving time on the individual. Unfortunately, as tools improve in construction and we're able to save individuals time given a certain task, unfortunately in parallel, the sort of regulatory oversight and paperwork is likewise increasing. And so if you actually try to graph our meeting construction production over time or productivity over time, it is relatively flat. But I think what that graph fails to mention is sort of, again, that raving level of red tape sort of sounds derogatory, but a familiar term to, you know, any industry that that red tape burden is increasing. And so I think if you can continue to optimize what you are already doing as the impact of the quote unquote red tape increases, safety quality checks, inspections, permits, submissions, et cetera. That's how you can sort of optimize the time of the tasks you're already doing to prepare for the additional burden, if you will, that's coming. That's one way we think about that too. And then finally, you know, mainly working with entry-level employees, a big challenge for them is having that information disseminated to them. They're not on every phone call that a project manager or decision maker is. And so they sort of have to go cherry pick what's relevant to the context of their task at hand. And so that's another piece where, while I haven't quantified well yet, I, as a gut feeling, know has value, which is the ability to find the information relevant to a task easier, as opposed to searching through file folders on a drive or a list of questions asked to a design team. If you can, quite frankly, group filter and sort those, the set of information you already have, regardless of how you measure it, that is going to save your team time because they can get access to what they need to either make the decision in front of them or complete the task in front of them quicker. And that's at least how we conceptualize justifying that software here internally. One last example is maybe expanding our capabilities. And this might dovetail into some of the other articles for that are relevant to this podcast is kind of considering another tool that would capture information that we weren't previously, or that maybe we were capturing manually previously. As an example, we have 360-degree cameras used on our job site to monitor progress. How far along with framing are we? How far along with painting are we? You name it. And so what those site cameras will do, they're held by an individual, either mounted to a hard hat, if you can imagine that, or carried on a monopod. And by simply walking through an active job site, that camera is ongoing snapping pictures or video that is able to analyze a percent complete of a particular scope. So no, we didn't have that tool before. We were sort of walking the job site and with our eyes tracking, maybe writing down the percent complete of work. And so in that case, it will save the manual looking and writing. And so it's saving the time on that, maybe creating another administrative burden for managing that percent complete data that's being automated, but that ultimately frees up that individual, you know, again, from the clipboard and observing to spend their time elsewhere, maybe mm -hmm. a more high value task. So there's um, a lot of that happening in construction right now. 
those are excellent examples and it's so futuristic for this old guy thinking about how that would have been so nice back when we were building roads anyway this next and last question on this before we go to where's tech going in 2023 and beyond i'm interested do you think in justifying bringing in new digital tools and getting teams more effective on them is your organization going to add various measures for validation, or do you think you've captured the impact to existing measures? Because that's something that to me is a potential, another collaboration overload or digital overload issue. So could you comment on how you might see companies handling that? And then we'll move on to where technology is going, which is probably a subject of a whole podcast, but we'll keep it short. Sure. I'm going to comment in the context of what I'll call the digital tool belt of construction. There's a term that I wrote down. It's certainly not my term, but in researching for this episode, the term of app fatigue, not wow. unlike collaboration overload. But if you have an opportunity on your job site in construction, and I can imagine whatever the listener's business is, there is likely an app out there that will solve your problem. But all of a sudden, what if? you have 20 problems and 20 separate apps that oh. don't effectively connect to each other. You've all of a sudden, by trying to maybe solve one problem, unintentionally created other problems and other, you know, again, collaboration overload. Where do I go look to find the answer to my question? You sort of overburden your teams with too many tools. We, at least in our organization, and I would recommend this for anyone listening who is able to do something similar, but we have what we'll call a peer group. It is similarly side contractors and construction that we do not geographically compete with. And so we will basically gather as a group and compare notes. The listener can imagine why that would be valuable in their own specific use cases. Of course, it's not full open book, but for the purpose of the conversation at hand, useful. Now I want to borrow something from CAF instruction out of South Florida. The equivalent of me, if you will, there has a concept that he calls his four-legged stool as it relates to that digital tool belt. Their four-legged stool of project management, database storage, European meaning accounting, and then finally scheduling. And those are kind of the four main pieces they focus on. If all the other apps out there that don't integrate or quote unquote play nice with one of those legs of the stool, they don't even consider it because it's just wow. creating wasted time, wasted entry, wasted administration for each of their employees. So you, know, you need a real priority then, yet in terms of major systems silos, if you will, that 100%. That are going to rule the day. Yep, 100%. You know, to name drop, our project management platform is called Procore. If there is a random app that, let's say, tracks site access for the crews, you know, who's shown up and when. If it doesn't integrate with my daily log in Procore, I don't want anything to do with it because all I'm doing is creating another essentially job or task for someone to manage who is already fully loaded. Mm -hmm. uh, and so whatever listener, your organization or your quote unquote stool or digital tool belt is, make sure you understand what the primary pieces of that are and whether or not additional apps or additional tools or additional process quote unquote play nice with what you prioritize. Because if not, you're ultimately just burdening your team with more time they don't need to spend. Okay. And then specifically on the question, because that was all excellent. So it sounds like keep 
same measures as opposed to add any more would be our well, recommendation. That's a tricky question. And I thought it is. It's there, very tricky. Podcast. That's why we're asking. So I'm going to briefly open up the can of worms for AI yeah. because there's a lot of, you know, generative tech. What do we ask it? What is useful uh, well, for it? Well, let, let's use that. Let's use that as our transition yeah. into what's coming because that's really interesting. So what's coming 2023 and beyond? So you started with, go ahead, AI. And I mean, you asked the question or made the point, what is your common measure? Yeah. For whatever reason, the construction industry has not decided what the common measure is. I mean, of course we have, are we on budget? Are we on schedule? Are we performing quality inspection timely and achieving a pass and grade on inspection? Of course, that remains the case. But ideally, with all these tools that are now monitoring the day-to-day -day transactions of your team, that should, by extension, feed decision makers within your organization very specific information about the progress of their jobs that is monitored as specific as necessary for the decisions you have to make. And so moving into AI briefly, Yes, AI is very good at getting you an answer to a query you've given it, but how good is your query? Is the query yeah. aligned with the business problem you need to solve? And if not, the AI will give you the answer you seek, but the answer may or may not be relevant to your business problem at hand. And so that's what we're trying to optimize, at least at Cordy right now. Is what apart from the aforementioned, you know, sort of common metrics and construction are relevant to day-to-day -day operations that we can track on a day-to-day -day basis, not just a monthly schedule update or a monthly pay request to an owner. Where can we get more fine detail to try and, you know, dare I say, anticipate problems on a job site? You know, if we have a certain task throughout the course of our project, is that task staying on pace in such a way that won't delay the schedule. I think a big piece of this too is what historical data does your company have and how can it be leveraged? Because mm -hmm. ultimately, if you just start firing off questions to an AI system, it's going to give you answers on the context it knows. And you very well may not know the context it's giving you answers off of. You know, ultimately what I find more valuable, again, not having to do copywriting or advertisement or marketing, which might be useful in a chat GPT context is instead of leveraging the entire internet worth of data to give me answers, leveraging the data that's relevant to our organization. We've been lucky to have been around since 1958 and the particular accounting system we've used has been around for about 20 years. And so minimally, we have 20 years of numerical data that we can leverage and essentially try to, dare I say, predict what might happen given certain alignment or disalignment with what we've seen 20 years so far. Excellent. I see roles changing too. That brings in the human element. How fast can your teams absorb change? And the change keeps coming. Recently, I had to go on chat, GPT, and there's a book project I'm working on. And for fun, I said, okay, I'm going to try starting this book project with chat GPT. And in under 40 minutes, I had, without the citations, about 5,200 words written in a rough draft. And I recently did a book and it was about 58,000 words. So I got a rough draft of my next project, which if I assume it's the same size, is 10% in 40 minutes. Now, it's not ready to publish, not at all. To your point, it, it needed some rearranging and you learn a lot about how to interface with it and that kind of thing. But what came to me 
is I'm kind of a slow reader, but anyway, the rate at which knowledge is thrown at you and then the additional task of having to sort it. So what's really interesting to me is the impact on us as organizations. I think knowledge is going to get commoditized. It already is to an extent. Again, there's a bunch of different organizations out there that talk about knowledge, skills, and disciplines or some form of those three. And really it's being emphasized. The knowledge can't do anything by itself, skills and disciplines of implementing it, but it's coming so fast. We're back to that prioritization you were talking about before, which I think it is something organizations really got to get comfortable with the rate at which change is coming and then the rate of potential solutions and their ability to assess them in order to make margins so they can be here next year. So what's been your reaction to what's coming? Couple of things. I want to show a, I did, apart from personal images, I did bring a relevant image for today that I'm going to share here briefly. But first, a quote. I don't know who said it, and I may butcher the paraphrasing, so bear with me. But today is the last day that change will move this slow. And that's yes. universally true, not just in business, but technology, no. software, you name it. So keeping that in mind. So a joking image, but I feel like it's relevant to this conversation. You have to ensure, to your point, the knowledge is there, the knowledge will continue expanding, the access to knowledge across, dare I say, organizations similar to yours will continue to expand. And so you have to know what is your query? What is the question you want to answer? What is the question relevant to your business that you want to optimize? If you are very specific about that, you will advance your ability to gain value from the knowledge set. There's sort of a joke made in construction and architecture about the dissemination of data anonymously across companies. And the joke example given is that every architecture firm out there has the same 20 flashing details. But if you ask a single architecture firm to share said flashing details with you, they'll say, no, these are mine. These are proprietary, et cetera. But the next architecture firm down the street has the same exact ones. And so the, the point I'm trying to make is if the slight variations made in the example of a flash in detail, if that were commoditized and anonymously shared across organizations, you could benefit from looking at thousands of flash in details optimized for your specific use case. Or in the case of construction, something that we haven't quite figured out, but that's being talked about is what data that we hold as organization would be worth pooling either industry-wide maybe in a peer group, maybe in a small consortium of companies. I don't know the answer yet. I'm actively trying to answer that question. And then how would you then account for geographic variability, project type variability, owner type variability, et cetera, and then use that to leverage what you know. That's why I'm slightly dubious of that expanse because ultimately the knowledge set you have in the company is by default relevant to your company. So if you already have that knowledge set, try to optimize your use of it to inform work that's moving forward. But in terms of what's coming, I think there'll be a lot more quote unquote pooling of data industry-wide, not just in construction, but in any industry. I can't remember the, the medical example. I believe it's HIPAA and it might be the wrong acronym, but in any case, there is a pooled database of medical information that any hospital can go reference to best inform the prognosis they give you. So imagine if, you know, as an analogy to you, listener, whatever your company handles, what if you could look at thousands of transactions across similar companies or across similar types of goods or types of services to help inform how you might adjust 
something within your business. Mm. And that's ultimately what healthcare companies are doing, leveraging that huge, again, pooled database. It doesn't exist in construction yet, but it could. That's interesting. A, a business school, you know, kind of tool one axiom is don't outsource your competitive advantage. Yeah. And it's really interesting. Sometimes data and knowledge is competitive advantage. In my experience with small material suppliers, small construction companies, which I've do merger or acquisition assimilated over the years. There's always something in the acquired entity, organization, group of people, systems that is just kind of special, which is a eureka moment. It's an epiphany of, holy crap, that works really nice. I'm going to imp implement that everywhere else. And that's- If, if I may though, if yeah. I may, is that knowledge useful on its own or is it useful in the context and the way you would use it in your own organization? I think it's kind of two sides sure, <laughs> because sure. if my organization doesn't know about it and another organization does, and they can create margin with it, by definition, it's very much a competitive advantage. They're not going to be willing to share because right. margin is the sustainability plan. I'm just, I'll go toe to toe with anybody on that one. No margin, no next year, at least mm -hmm. after a certain amount of years with no margin. You're not going to be around. So how do we create margin, which means how do we differentiate ourselves? I don't know. You know, in my world, there's hundreds of companies like my company, but we don't all specialize. There's probably a very small handful that are very similar. I don't know if construction's like that in the listeners' businesses are like that, but it's going to be really interesting that partitioning of data, right? What, what is willing to share, which is commoditized already? which by then let's use the definition on that, that everybody knows it. Everybody knows how to use it. Everybody makes X return with it. I'm not sure if that's right or not, but those are considerations for the listener to think about. First, the engine that you said years of data, 20 years of data, same thing at my company. We have in certain data sets, very proprietary information that I know it's all we have. A lot of it's customer data, customer interaction, problem solving, production methodology, blah, blah, blah. And I know that's not what we're talking about, but it's going to be interesting to see what gradually gets peeled back as not proprietary anymore. And yep. to me, that's accelerating, which as that happens, and if it hits you, listener, you know, like my company, your company, then you better be out in front of redefining yourself. And that's where the urgency starts to creep in into decision makers that have to be looking down the road. So I think this is a good lead in because we're almost out of time, Alex, on Chad, GBT, and other AI. I mean, real or not? impactful or not, what's it going to do to the rate of change? What do you see, especially, you know, I'm a baby boomer who's just not as versed in new technologies as people who are raised, who have the innate instincts, if you will, that yes, the way everything from gaming to the way screens work, that there's a whole new set of neuron connections in human beings from the time they're very young that my organ, my age has to work very hard to develop, but get off on a tangent. I really want to hear what you have to say about where AI is going and should we be concerned and what the heck should we do about it? For sure. I mean, in a word, I mean, it will accelerate change to be sure. And surely some of your listeners have seen this quote around the internet. You will not be replaced by AI. You will be replaced by someone using AI. I think uh -huh. it's a lot of truth do that. I won't pretend I figure out how exactly to use it in my own day-to-day -day just yet, 
but it's more so not using generative tools like ChatGPT that can sort of generate content for me per se. I think the use of AI in my world is more so leveraging the existing data set we have and leveraging the data we are accumulating on a day-to-day -day basis, meaning from the transactions on each of our projects, the transaction could be a question asked, a drawing reviewed, a payment made, a change order written, you name it. And I think as we build that data set, if you can in real time position what you're seeing from said data set to inform the trajectory of a given project, a given product, a given initiative at your company, that to me is kind of the, the golden egg mm -hmm. of where I would like to get Corey to in terms of AI. A gentleman who works here, he has the title of VP of strategy, a very smart individual, similar background to master of architecture and subsequently an MBA. And he is working through machine learning effort here at Cordy to try and leverage some of that 20 year data set that we have to see how it might inform or project what we anticipate to come given external variables such as high inflation, yeah. geopolitical volatility, supply chain disruption, et cetera. Basically try to pull a basic lever representing some of those events globally and how it might affect the quote unquote model of what we anticipate to happen. I mean, of course, there's a lot of proprietary complexity in what I just described, but ultimately I think it boils down to what is the question you want to answer? And is that question honed to the business problem you're trying to solve? And then you can nice. kind of work outwards from there. So for we novices, and though maybe it's a dumb question, but clearly chat GBT is on a mega database and you're not going to put your data into chat GPT. Likely not, no. Well, I just don't think that's wise, right? I got that part right? Okay. Well, so are there a lot of- what results you seek, yeah. Pardon me? It depends on what result you're seeking from ChatGPT. No, I understand. But my proprietary data, am I getting it right that there's tools, another digital tool out there that can come in AI and just help me with my own data? Is that possible? Yes, but again, reliant on asking your data set good questions. Okay, what but what's the tool so that with mm. proprietary data that other people don't have access to what I'm doing with my data in AI? Because I think that's a common question for small business owners. Sure. I mean, the very first thing you need is a database. You need somewhere where right. I like to think of it as columns and rows. Where is your huge right. quote unquote spreadsheet of information relevant to your use case? You can't yep. do any of what we're describing without that as a basis. Okay. So let's assume we have that. Yes. So, so you have that. The very first thing you can begin to do is use the visualization tool, such as Microsoft Power BI or Tableau to begin to ask what quote unquote question you want to ask and whether or not you're getting the answer that helps optimize your so it, problem. So it's a data query. It's an old fashioned data query. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And, and see that parlays into, it's interesting what AI is. Sometimes guys like me were thinking Captain Kirk and Scotty, and it's just not that, right? It's using the data you have to go in and do queries with existing tools. Then you can write programs or macros that will react to that and control something. And exactly. I just finished a course I recommend to the something like this, the fourth industrial revolution for manufacturers. 
And my understanding of it is really more sensor-based. In other words, in the particular class that I took, there's sensors, for instance, that can just monitor the rotation, both the resistance or power accumulation and velocity of a shaft and a bearing. And over time, look at the very small tolerances that change to predict the failure of the bearing. So that, the point is, is that kind of sensor is out there for so many applications yeah. that you can literally hard, in that case, it's a preventative maintenance application. You can hardwire that, watch data, have control metrics, and then have the system tell you it's time to change the bearing. And if you can extrapolate that into more complex examples, then what you're able to do is maybe there's a robotic element that can actually change something out. But yep. people are, I think, overblowing how much is already at our fingertips to incorporate into our organizations without. Right. So maybe those expenditures we were talking about before might be a whole lot less than what you're thinking about. Yeah, I think the, the sensor on a piece of manufacturing equipment is a great example. Yeah. Ultimately, I mean, we talk about having a database, right? But you need an input. You need yes. an input that is tied to your product, your service, your operation, et cetera. And manufacturing is an easy example to conceptualize because you have, you sort of in your line, in your mind, imagine the production line that at one end spits out a product. And there's all these variables that have to sort of play together throughout that production line for the product to be able to be spit out at the end. Mm -hmm. Obviously there's wear and tear, there's breakages, there's, there's problems that occur throughout that line. And I think monitoring it electronically is a great example that can, again, be extrapolated to any business use case. In mm -hmm. our case, I think construction struggle is that our inputs are often manual. They're not a sensor. It is someone, a person on a job site entering mm -hmm. information into a system. And so we're, we're so reliant on what I will call data hygiene in terms of what that person is entering and when and how for it to be useful for us. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, we won't get into it now, but that's where sort of training, adoption, implementation comes in. It's not just how to use the tool, it's how are you using the tool in a way that informs the decision maker and what they need in order to make their decision. Yeah. Uh, and then being able to react to the data in an actionable way that makes a positive difference, which is kind of a subject for a whole nother episode. So Alex, believe it or not, we're already out of time. I'd love to know what you think the listener's primary takeaway should be from what we've talked about today. For sure. I would say at a high level, what is your, your digital tool belt or what is your, your stool, so to speak? What are the primary tools or processes in your organization that is your quote unquote North star produces the information that you rely on as a company and anything else you implement? could be compatible with those tools. If not, ignore it, move on to the next one. Second up is as far as talent and the kind of growing demand of IT use cases within your businesses, figure out who that person might be in your organization that has a varying, maybe from entry-level to mid-level grasp on what your organization is about, but also has sort of an inherently tech savviness about them and challenge that individual to combine those two familiarities to help implement better process, better tools for your organization. I think identifying that person, if you haven't already, is paramount. I mean, my title of construction technology manager, I thought was made up until I saw it at many other organizations throughout the industry. And then finally, what is the question you want to answer 
in terms of optimizing your business, your service, your product. Knowing what that question is, is really what I see as the competitive advantage. That's what I alluded to earlier. Yes, of course, the data set alone, you know, your, your historical records alone may be your competitive advantage, but at least from my perspective, I would argue how you leverage it is more so your competitive advantage. What you take out of your historical records to inform what you do moving forward. So, you know, even as we at Corey try to figure out, you know, what questions we want to ask of our product team, I would invite you, the listener, to figure out what is the question that you want to ask or need to have asked ongoing in terms of what constitutes success or failure uh, for your business. Those would be my big three takeaways. Those are outstanding. I just want to add, especially for the decision makers, think about the roles and the changing role. Alex kind of touched on that what's going to happen up and down your organizational chart. Also, don't ignore this. Dive in, really start to understand that comment about budgeting and filling in some money for this and, you know, resources besides people and their time. We really got to talk about what's going to happen with money. And then the pace, you know, everybody's so busy at organizations and it's going to come really hard and fast. So there's going to be a lot of reprioritization in companies as they roll forward and just managing the human element and how is that going to change? I already said that, but how is that going to change roles are really rolling forward? And remember, we talked about the two sides of the business, get the order, fill the order. And there's a whole bunch of stuff going on out there right now about combining the marketing, sales, transaction, click, easy. I don't want to deal with anybody. Then we get into a complex situation. So we need help. But then you're at the backside serving a customer, doing a product or service. What happens to your order fulfillment and ops team? It's all got, you can't do this on one side of the business and not look at the other one. And the, the last one I like to throw out there, especially for baby boomers, get out there and get on chat GBT or something and just try it. See what works. Experiment with it. It's really interesting. They won't let you, as of this podcast this morning, sign up for the $20 a month advanced version anymore. It's full. So there's a lot of people on it. And I don't even know what that means right now, but we're going to find out soon enough. And lastly, I would invite you to go back and listen to the Apollo 13, where I use catastrophic management principles. And now it's really interesting because catastrophe tends to be a point in time, right? But I want the listener to consider the impact of technology being potentially catastrophic, not in a paranoid way, like, oh my God, but in an opportunistic way. And if you listen to that, I have the 5A rules, assess, aggregate, align, assign, and act. And if you listen to what NASA does, I'm not sure if I got it right, but it's a good interpretation anyway, and very useful. The key part is then simulate the change. If you can do pilot testing with individuals like Alex talked about before, you know, up and down the organization, even cross your industry for non-competitive similar players, those are just really, really good ideas. So, boy, I can't believe how fast that went. I really appreciate you joining us today, Alex, and, and thank you. There's probably other things we can talk about in many, many more podcasts, but I really enjoyed having you today. And you are an impressive individual and going to make a positive difference for your organization and help your organization be an industry leader. I'm quite sure of it. So thanks for being here. Any parting comments? Just a couple. 
I'll throw in a couple plugs as well, just as it relates to kind of the, the pace of technology and you're not being comfortable with that. Actually, a, a baby boomer I work with makes a differentiation between clickers and non-clickers. Don't be intimidated to be a clicker, meaning if you're trying to experiment with the technology, be a chat GPT, just be willing to go out there and give it a shot, meaning yeah. give it a click, so to speak. There are rare times interacting with a tool or process where doing nothing is the best way to learn. I'd encourage to give it a shot. That's all I have. Always kind of check me out on alexanderairs.com. That's my personal website. If you want to learn more about my work, you can also find me on Instagram at Ayers Alexander. But yeah, thanks for having me, Dad. Yeah. Great to be part of the Fit Professional One podcast. And I hope your listeners learned something today. Thank you. Just see you, Alex. Love you. Say hi to the fam. Love you too, Dad. Yeah. Hey, bye. Thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time and investing it on this important subject of information technology and how it might be changing going forward for both you and your organization. I hope that you found some great takeaways and you can implement something that's useful for you in the near future. Please contact me at my website, thefitprofessional1.com, and let me know if you'd like a free consultation to look into this important issue further. Additionally, if you have anything else you'd like to hear in terms of a margin max minute, which again, the short version on a weekly basis, that's five to 10 minutes with something immediately implementable, let me know. Also for future podcasts, which are bi-weekly, It'll range between one and two hours where we do a deeper dive on the subject matter. And most of the time, I'll have a very interesting and well-qualified guest to talk about the subject at hand. I do hope that you'll join me in the future. I appreciate you being here. I hope that what you found today will maximize your margin, optimize your teams, and rescue your time. So with that, have a great week until the next time we get together and it's time to get to work.